the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Governments and lobbyists alike are gearing up for another fortnight of decarbonisation negotiations at the IMO, starting next week. With industry eyes still set squarely on the 2020 sulphur reduction targets, there's a growing feeling that the ambition to at least half carbon emissions from shipping by 2050 may be stuck somewhere at the bottom of the industry's to-do list. So for this week's podcast, we caught up with Peter Thompson. He's the Fijian diplomat who United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres appointed as his special envoy to the oceans, with a mandate to galvanise marine efforts around the UN's sustainable development goals. Make no mistake, this is a man with the ear of the global political elite. So when he says he wants to see 100% emission reduction from shipping and wants the industry to pay its fair share via tariffs, then I would humbly suggest that it's time to pay attention. Welcome to the podcast, Peter Thompson. You are the United Nations Secretary General's Special Envoy to the Oceans. Could you explain to the Lloyd's List listeners exactly what that means and, and what it is you do? Thank you, Richard. I am the first Special Envoy for the Ocean, and uh, my appointment was made back in September 2017. And I'm basically working through the support for Sustainable Development Goal 14, which is the Ocean's Goal, through to the expected next UN Ocean Conference, which is expected to be held in Lisbon, uh, 2nd to the 6th of June 2020. Mm. So in the interim, I'm uh, doing what I can around the globe with governments, with corporations, with science, to um, make sure that we're on track with the implementation of SDG 14. I worry a little bit that the, the shipping industry is awash with acronyms and uh, various environmental agendas, but SDG 14 may be one of those acronyms that I'm afraid probably isn't as widely recognized as it should be. It's part of the wider, I think, 17 UN Sustainable Goals. Yeah. 14 really covers everything to do with the ocean. But within shipping, I think we've been very focused on things like ballast water, sulfur reduction, and now, of course, decarbonization. That, of course, dovetails into what you do. My concern is that the shipping industry has viewed these issues within silos. And I think what you're trying to do, and I think now what is becoming apparent within the walls here at the International Maritime Organization headquarters in London, is that we need a more holistic approach within the shipping industry to address these issues. Uh, Thanks. Um, Look, I'll get to that. But before I do, uh, you mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 of them, and the fact that perhaps they're not that well known amongst the populace. And I would actually agree with that. I do my own personal surveys ever since the time I was uh, involved in forming the Sustainable Development Goals back in 2014 and 15. The essential thing about the Sustainable Development Goals is that, like the Paris Agreement, This is humanity's plan for survival for our species on this planet. I think it's starting to dawn on people now that we really are approaching a very troubled period in that regard. But the good news is that we do have a plan. And these sustainable development goals, uh, if you haven't had a look at them, look at them. Because what they are is our survival plan. And they were negotiated over two years at the United Nations and agreed to by consensus by every country on the planet. So that they are our plan and everybody should be aware of them. And within those is SDG 14, the 14th goal, which uh, deals with the ocean targets. 
Mm. And uh, happy to discuss uh, where all that leads in terms of uh, the ocean and IMO and shipping. Well, I mean, the, the the big one, of course, was agreed here at the IMO last year, the, the target to at least reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from shipping by 50% by 2050. I mean, it sounds a way off, but you know, anybody within shipping is going to understand that that is within the lifespan of certain assets that we are building today. So reducing the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from shipping is, is no mean feat. And I think they've described internally here at the IMO as an ambitious set of uh, goals. I think depending on where you are in the industry, they're either overly ambitious or or perhaps not not severe enough. But how do you see, as, a, as an outsider almost from, from shipping, how do you see the likelihood of uh, shipping really being able to hit those targets? Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely essential. I applaud IMO for the initial strategy, as I understand it, is uh, to reduce uh, by 50% by 2050 uh, the GHG emissions of the global fleet. But before I comment on that, I just back the truck up again to the, the ocean itself mm. and why those GHG emissions are so important and why IMO's reduction by 50%, and I hope by 100% by 2050, is so important. The ocean is in deep trouble. There are basically five areas of trouble. One is pollution, and I think everybody knows about plastic pollution now, and there's a lot of good work being done to correct it. But pollution is also sewage and agricultural runoff and industrial runoff, and heavy metals. So I am very optimistic that by 2030, when SDG 14 runs out, that we will have basically got pollution under control. That's a man management issue. Second one is fishing. Same thing there. I'm very optimistic that by 2030, we will have ended illegal fishing and uh, harmful fishing practices and harmful fisheries subsidies and that sort of thing. Then again, just man management. We can get that done by 2030. But the other three are much more pernicious and will be with us for hundreds of years and are trending badly and there's not enough public awareness about them. And they are ocean acidification. And uh, if you think ocean acidification, think how difficult it will be for shellfish and vertebrate in the ocean to form their skeletons and their shells. Deoxygenation, less oxygen in the water. Think how much more difficult it's going to be for life in the water as a result of that. And ocean warming. And with ocean warming, you're looking at the death of coral, you're looking at rising sea levels and saying goodbye to uh, parts of the world that we uh, were above water, nations, lowlands, river deltas, and so on. And you're also talking about shifting of species and currents because of ocean warming. Now, those three that I mentioned, the pernicious three, are caused by one thing and one thing only, which is our greenhouse gas emissions. So that's everything. If you care about the health of the ocean, it comes back to dramatic, radical reduction of our GHG emissions. So that's the scenario in which these IMO reductions in GHG emissions from the global fleet fall into and why it's so important that the initial strategy has been announced, but that the fleet goes towards uh, hopefully zero emissions by 2050 rather than 50%. The key phrase in the uh, the agreement, of course, is at least. I think people have latched on to the 50% cut, but we're talking at least, and as you said, with the intention that actually we go above and beyond that very swiftly. But just to put that into perspective in terms of numbers, we're talking about, you know, historical average of around 3.2% growth in trade, seaborne trade per year. You do basic maths and extrapolate that by 2050, assuming nothing changes, 
we're looking at uh, around 32 billion tons of cargo being shipped per year. We're looking at around uh, 3,000 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, which is significantly higher than the, uh, the IMO targets. From here to 2050 is not a long stretch in terms of shipping, in terms of the asset life cycle. You're talking about a near total decarbonization of uh, the actual shipping fleet in under a generation. You're talking about inevitably some form of speed reduction, whether that's mandated or not. You're talking about probably putting in a market-based mechanism that puts a price on carbon and allows the market to come in. So this is not just a regulatory response. You're talking about politics that um, have been considered very difficult within shipping on minor subjects over the years, somehow taking a generation to come in. It's no mean feat that we're going to get there. This is a, a set of problems, both political and engineering. How do you see that playing out, realistically? I would say two comments. Firstly, that you've got to institute very quickly, and that's what I'm talking to the IMO. I'm, I'm meeting with the Secretary General of IMO after this meeting to talk about uh, the need for research and development. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not going to happen by magic. Uh, we know that there are very promising alternatives for propulsion and for fuel and so on, but it's going to take much greater research and development input than we're currently getting. Mm. And you can't leave this to individual companies. You know, why should uh, others ride on the back of the research and development of uh, individual companies? So uh, there has to be some kind of joint effort on this. And I believe there are talks advanced in that regard. So research and development, essential. The other thing I'd say is <laughs> just because it doesn't exist today doesn't mean it's not going to exist tomorrow. I live in a London news house. And for those listeners who don't know what that means, and, and there are tens of thousands of these muse houses in London. They're little places, uh, little terrace back streets where all the horses and carriages used to be 100 years ago. Where my living room is, there were six horses in there. Where my bedroom is was where the hay upstairs was kept. All that changed in a matter of a few years. Can you imagine the hand-wringing that went on before that about what's going to happen to all these beautiful horses and all this lovely leather that we put on the horses and all the jobs that go with that, right? Change is a constant, and uh, we will have change in the shipping industry. Why? Because we need it. As I've said before, we have to radically cut DHG emissions or suffer the consequences of a dead ocean. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast and talk to you is because you have the wider perspective. I think looking internally, people can very easily get embroiled in the, uh, the politics of what has happened in the past here within the IMO structures. You know, you're dealing with a 170 plus member state governments. The fact they agree on anything is a minor miracle of diplomatic uh, ingenuity on a, on a year to year basis. But as I say, this is a little bit beyond what the IMO has done in the past. But you've got the experience of dealing with ICAO, the aviation sector, and many other sectors beyond. How do you think shipping is is, is set up in comparison to all the other uh, industrial sectors that you're speaking to right now? Well, as I'm sure you know, ICAO and uh, IMO were sort of left as special categories under the Paris, Paris Agreement, um, is the international nature of shipping and civil aviation. With the announcement of the initial strategy, I think that IMO is well on the road. ICAO worries me. Uh, you know, what are we going to do about jet travel? You know, rather than lowering airfares, I think we should be putting airfares up. Uh, we have to really think very carefully about where we're going with civil aviation. But uh, as I say, change is a constant, uh, and we will uh, find ways of dealing with that because we have to. Uh, there's no alternative. But as far as the international community is concerned, multilateralism occasionally gets a bad rap, but the Paris Agreement, 
the sustainable development goals were arrived at by 193 countries in you know, two years, in the case of the SDGs, of, of uh, long nights of negotiation. But it was consensus agreement by 193 countries. So uh, to me, multilateralism is the only way that we can run this planet, and uh, IMO is no exception. And by the way, I'm a big fan of IMO. I like the fact that it's not just member states here. Industry uh, is a big part. Uh, the partnership here is, is something that other international organizations should be following, I believe. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key differences, of course, between aviation and, and shipping is that shipping is such a fragmented set of industries. There's no single sector. One of the benefits and, I guess, disadvantages there is that because of the nature of the industry and because of the setup of the IMO, the industry has tended to respond to regulatory deadlines, uh, you know, the lowest common denominator. In order to hit these targets, we, we can't do that. We simply can't do that. It, it is going to require a combination of market forces, regulation, and as you say, some serious uh, investment in research and development into technology that frankly just doesn't exist at sea yet. I'm optimistic, but concerned that those forces as yet haven't really gelled together. However, I'd be interested for your thoughts on, on how we could do a better job at uh, working a little bit more holistically, but also how you see this playing out in terms of industry working with government and, and working on this multilateral basis? Well, as I said before, I do think that research and development is tourism to say we've got to invest in that, but it's a question of how we invest in that and how we invest at scale to make these technological changes, which will definitely come with the proper research and development. Uh, we're not, we've got enough of a sniff of them to know that they're possible, just let's have the research and development. And I would like to see uh, every element of shipping in the world chipping in on this. Mm. And that's easily enough done by some kind of tariff on, the, uh, on every company that's involved in shipping. And why shouldn't they all be part of the solution? They're all part of the problem. So that is uh, something that I'm, I'm confident the industry will see the logic in that and we'll get that research and development because it's not 2050. Of course, it's 2030 that we need to see all this uh, these new fuels and new technologies uh, and new propulsion systems in place, or not in place, but uh, developed to an extent where between 2030 and 2050 they can be installed in the global fleet. So uh, I, I feel uh, very bullish about it. I don't think uh, it's anything that can't be overcome. Most engineers, I guess, would probably agree with you. They are inherently optimistic creatures and uh, solutions can be found. Yeah. I'm more concerned, I guess, about the politics. You mentioned tariffs, and I think it is inevitable, much as uh, politicians try to avoid uh, phrases like market-based mechanisms, that we have to effectively accept that the implicit price of carbon has to be factored into global trade. Now, yeah. where and how is a huge political uh, issue. Um, it has been discussed within these walls and within IMO uh, for many years. And frankly, we're no further down the line in terms of whether that looks like a, a trading scheme uh, or a, a bunker levy. But it can't just be the shipping companies that are going to be paying for this. This is a question of linking cargo to the ship owners and, uh, and implementing this on a, on a national basis as sure. well. And that's not just shipping. Though. That's uh, right across human activity and the whole area of um, carbon dioxide removal is one uh, that I don't believe is being adequately faced at the moment by the global community, but uh, is one which inevitably uh, must have broader discussion, more mm. transparent discussion. Uh, but as I say, changes are constant. Uh, <laughs> you know, I come from Fiji, and uh, my people have been living in Fiji for five generations, and um, my, my 
the first of my ancestors to uh, arrive there was a master mariner, and he arrived by sail, and that's how people got around in those days. The indigenous people of the Pacific, of course, had discovered everything there was to discover in the Pacific Ocean, and if you've ever flown over the Pacific Ocean, you know what a vast space that is with tiny dots of land. He discovered all that by sail and paddle. So, you know, it's not as if the end of diesel engines is going to be the end of humanity, not at all. No. And you've been doing this while you, you somewhat jokingly refer to yourself as a traveling salesman for SDG 14, but a number of years now. How do you feel things have changed in the last few years? The, as far as the ocean is concerned, the 2017 UN Ocean Conference, which was the first one that was held, and uh, now you go to any country in the world, and there's ocean action work being done by governments, by corporations, by civil society. Uh, so, you know, the, the question we're asking ourselves for next year is, uh, okay, we've got the awareness, everybody knows about oceans troubles, what are we going to do about it? And uh, the UN um, member states have, been, have got the resolution in place for the conference for next year, and I see that the theme is uh, scaling up ocean science and innovation. Mm. And I think that's really the critical area is science and innovation. That'll be the next big change. But I also see uh, investment in the sustainable blue economy as a, as a big uh, change that's coming up as well. And you're finally, you're, you're leaving here to go and have uh, lunch with the uh, IMO Secretary General, Mr. Kitak Lin. What's your key message to him and what do you expect him to impart to the rest of the member states within the IMO? I would come back to the main point of the interview, which is that uh, research and development are necessary now and that, they, uh, that, that, that the costs of that have to be something which is equally shared across the whole community and the whole shipping community. But it's not something to talk about for too long. We need those resources going in now because the 2030 is going to come around very quickly. Peter Johnson, thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast.